Well, hello there. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies, where each season we select six movies that are all related to a single theme. Then on each episode, we explore the people in front of and behind the camera to try to make sense out of how and why each of these movies were made. But that's not all. After that, we give you an in-depth, detailed review of each movie, whether you like it or not. Because we want to know, heck, is this thing any good? I'm Chad Cooper, and along with my dear friend, Mr. Bo Ransdell, we are presenting this season's theme, Game On! Where we are plugging into six movies, all inspired by video games. This is Season 7, Episode 4, featuring the film Wing Commander, which is based on a video game that I've never played. And heck, I've never even heard of it. And until recently, I didn't even know that this movie existed. This movie stars Freddie Prince Jr. and Matthew Lillard, two actors that would somehow go on to achieve a more noble cinematic pairing in not one, but two Scooby-Doo movies. This movie has everything required to be a pick-six movie episode. It's terrible, and it's awful. So you know what? Without further ado, here is my wingman, Mr. Bo Ransdell, to introduce us to 1999's feature film, Wing Commander. On June 20th, 1975, Jaws opened at 409 theaters, about 40 more than The Godfather had three years before. It was heralded by the biggest promotional push in the history of cinema. Jaws advertised on 23 television shows, airing 30-second spots that showcased the creepy John Williams score and promised what everyone wanted to see, a giant shark that ate beachgoers. Followed by radio and print ads, there was no film as ubiquitous in the summer of 1975 as Jaws. Sure, it helped that Jaws was a well-made film, boasting great characters and a propulsive pace, But even if it had been a big stinky poo-poo, it probably still would have been a success. It was designed to be a hit, and a hit it was. These days, if you pay attention to these kinds of things, you'll hear of movies opening on 1,500 screens or more than 2,000 screens. Jaws opening on less than 500 sounds kind of quaint. Maybe, you might say, there weren't as many movie theaters in 1975 as we have in the future with our protein pellets and hoverboards. Au contraire, mesdames and messieurs. Way back in 1953, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms had premiered on over 1,400 theater screens and, as it happened, made a lot of money thanks to being everywhere, not to mention a few ads of its own. And also, it was called Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, I want to watch that movie right now. Despite the fact that Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and yes, it does sound even better upon repetition, despite the fact it appeared on every screen it could and made money, Hollywood took no lessons from this. See, theaters booked the movies they wanted, and the studios weren't yet in the business of telling the chains what movies were going to be monster hits. While some movies may have made respectable money, the idea of the mega-hit the blockbuster, if you will, did not exist. Summer movies were not a thing. The biggest movies from Hollywood opened whenever the hell they wanted to. Gone with the Wind opened in December. The Godfather, mentioned above, dropped in March, as did The Sound of Music in 1965. 
Movies just weren't programmed in this way, and we, as audiences, weren't yet trained to associate summer movie releases with big-budget extravaganzas. At least, not until Jaws poked its fin through the waters and cruised to another 60 or so screens two weeks after its initial opening. By the end of its second month of release, Jaws now appeared on 954 screens, and it hit a milestone, $100 million. That's not a lot by today's standards, but it was eyebrow-raising at the time. And still, most studios tended to believe that the success of Jaws was a fluke. It was, they said, a summer movie, set in summer, the locations filled with sand and surf. Without these ingredients, the conventional wisdom went, a similar movie, similarly advertised, would be doomed to fail. Boy, these Hollywood types sure can't read the tea leaves very well. It took a second mega hit a couple of years later to convince these moguls that the big tentpole summer movie was a real thing. In that movie, The Goodbye Girl. I kid, of course, though Richard Dreyfuss is a delight and Marsha Mason delivers a tour de force performance as a modern woman navigating the complex mores of a relationship as a single woman, but, but I digress. Note, the movie in question is naturally Star Wars, which was unveiled on May 25th of that year. Like Jaws, marketing was a key component in driving Star Wars' success. 20th Century Fox, the distributor for Star Wars, wasn't convinced that Star Wars would be very good and had little hope for the movie. They allowed for some licensing of t-shirts and posters, but that was it. No cups in fast food places, no tie-ins. The marketing director for the film had to call in favors to get the movie a mention at the San Diego Comic-Con and anywhere else science fiction fans might gather. And still, no one thought much of the movie. Lucas himself was taken off for Hawaii on opening day, enjoying a tropical getaway while his movie tanked, or so he expected. He thought Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind was going to be a bigger hit. Spielberg wisely disagreed, and the two directors made a little bet. As a result, Steven Spielberg, to this day, gets 2.5% of the original Star Wars film's royalties. Obviously, Star Wars did well even though theaters had to be strong-armed into showing the movie. Most believe the novel adaptation, The Other Side of Summer, was the sure thing that summer for movie releases. Fox had to tell theaters, if you want to show The Other Side of Summer, you gotta show Star Wars. And when they did, Star Wars naturally exploded. You may have heard about it. It beat Jaws for the highest grossing movie of all time, and went on to sequels and re-releases and remasters and all sorts of madness. But for our story, the important thing is that it finally taught studio executives a valuable lesson, one that informs our entertainment 40 years later. If you make a big budget movie with lots of fancy effects and you market the ever living shit out of it, most of the time, even if it's not very good, you can make some money on your summer movies. Even if it's a crazy movie about pirates with dog people mascots and an old man seducing a younger kid to some Jedi cult where he makes out with his sister. If that can turn a buck, what about globetrotting archaeologists? Are guys stuck in skyscrapers with terrorists? Or more sharks? It cuts whack! Critics have since bemoaned the fact that this model of filmmaking squeezes out smaller movies, 
forcing studios to consolidate more of their budgets into a smaller number of movies that are more likely, quote, sure things. Properties or franchises with some kind of name recognition and a built-in marketing plan. They are commodities as much as art, perhaps more so. And they are the reason that you can count on at least one Star Wars movie and one superhero movie every year, if not every season. Fun fact, the Hollywood blockbuster, the films that make more money than any kind of entertainment, well, they're not actually the most successful form of entertainment. They haven't been for a while. The subject of this very season may give you a hint, dear listeners. That's right, it's video games. You may have heard of a little movie called Avengers Endgame, the one with the big purple guy who fights all the superheroes. That is classic blockbuster filmmaking, a spectacle release to coincide with the beginning of summer and with more tie-ins to fast food and toys and shirts and anything you could imagine. When it premiered, it made almost $258 million in one day. One damn day. And you know what? In terms of single-day entertainment sales, it's not even close. In 2013, September 17th to be exact, Rockstar Games released Grand Theft Auto V, the latest in their Grand Theft Auto series of open-world crime games. In a single day, it sold 11 million copies, generating almost $818 million in revenue. It crossed the billion-dollar mark in three days and has since made around $6 billion, with a B, dollars. Since 2001, Games have surpassed movies in entertainment sales and put music in its place too, at least since 2003, when even music fell to the video game juggernaut. It is projected that in 2021, movies will account for about $50 billion in sales, while video games will be more in line with $180 billion. That may sound crazy, but just last year in 2018, movies accounted for a hair over $40 billion in video games, $138 billion. But that wasn't always the case. Let's step in our personal time machine, and not that stupid one Derek made out of cardboard, and it didn't work at all, and he said you had to use your imagination, but I paid for a real time machine, Derek, not this cardboard piece of shit. I hope you fail fourth grade. Jerk. Waste of 20 bucks on a case of Capri Suns. Anyway, let's go back to 1989 when video games were mostly associated with home consoles like the Nintendo Entertainment System and the Atari 2600. They were popular, no question, but mostly seen as kids' toys, mostly harmless ways to while away an afternoon. On the computer side, things were a little more serious, if less successful. At the time, one of the most important video games in the world was developed by Origin Systems, an Austin, Texas-based company that produced the Ultima series of games. Without getting too deep in the nerd weeds here, what made Ultima remarkable was its use of morally gray and branching player choices that would alter the playing experience for the end user. It helped revolutionize UI or user interface. In short, the way you as a player interacted with the game. It boasted memorable characters, not the least of which was Lord British, an in-game character and the alter ego of Richard Garriott, one of the principal designers of the Ultima series, and a guy who became so rich off this stuff, he bought a seat on a space shuttle to check out Earth from orbit. Garriott is a fascinating figure and deserving of his own story, but he's a bit player in tonight's play. 
If you look just past Richard Garriott in his braggadocious manner, you'll see a smaller guy with a bad haircut and a British accent, so unusual in the wilds of Austin. That's Chris Roberts, and in 1989, he's about to change video games forever. Roberts grew up in England, where his father worked for Manchester University. It was there Roberts got his first taste of home computers, and he was one smitten kitten. He wrote a few games, simple affairs with titles like Wizardor and Strikers Run, but both of them got published even if they didn't make much money. These were the days of floppy disks and baggies and in back alley computer stores, homebrewed games made for the early days of home computers. Roberts ended up working on Commodore 64 games, which was the most successful home PC platform at the time, but his career would be slowed and then catapulted by his father's decision to take a job in Austin, Texas. Roberts didn't want to go. He'd already graduated high school and was on his way to college, but his father convinced him to come home for the summer, and if he wanted to go back to school in England, he would be free to do so. But once in Austin, Chris learned that the women of Austin were quite taken with his accent, and he was quite taken with them. He worked on a new game and needed an artist, a guy he met through a tabletop gaming convention. The artist was named Dennis Lubey, and he was, as it happened, a resident artist for Origin Systems. Chris was brought into the Origin fold, where he made a game called Times of Lore, which informed some of the changes that would be made to the future installments of Origin's very popular Ultima series, but not much more. And Chris was just a contractor, not really part of the Origin team, but he was enthusiastic and he knew his stuff, and he was eager to try out programming in the new MS-DOS platform, which was an early form of Windows. Another figure to slip into our tale here is a guy named Warren Spector. He was brought in as a producer for Origin and was assigned to Chris Roberts' new game, then titled Squadron. It would be a space exploration game and a space conquering game and a space fighting game and anything else you could do in space you would be able to do in Squadron. Except in those early days of programming, such a feat was nigh impossible. And yet, Warren Spector saw the potential in Robert's bold vision of his game and reined it in, giving it focus. Warren Spector was born for gaming. Like Roberts, he cut his teeth on tabletop games, and Spector even edited game manuals for the Uncanny X-Men game, released by the Dungeons & Dragons company, TSR, before he tried his hand at PC gaming. He is most famous for developing Deus Ex, a cyberpunk dystopian future game that is groundbreaking in how it allowed players to approach scenarios from multiple perspectives. One of the first true open world games where the player was not confined to a specific set of solutions. Be free, Deus Ex said, and play as thou wilt. His contributions cannot be understated in this story. So let's get on with Chris Roberts. Before Spectre became a legend though, he was shepherding Squadron through Origin Systems. Squadron was retitled Wing Leader, and a demo was made for the Consumer Electronics Show in 1990. Origin wasn't accustomed to showing off gameplay, but Spectre and Roberts believed for the game to be appreciated, it had to be played. At the Consumer Entertainment Show, Origin was known as the company that made Ultima, and few games the studio made weren't Ultima 
much less space adventures, so it was hard to take the upstart wing leader seriously. And then folks played it, and word spread that this game was something special. It was a cockpit view with you, the player, as the pilot. When you moved your joystick, so did the animated pilot. A small thing to be sure, but impressive at the time. It was simple enough to enjoy the dogfighting and deep enough to make it feel like an honest-to-goodness space simulation. What players who had only touched the demo did not see was the revolutionary manner of player progression, where lost missions didn't end the game, but were incorporated into the game's loose narrative, where a loss would result in reports that the war effort outside the player's missions were taking a bad turn. The pilot would then be forced to work his way back through the ranks to regain his or her former standing. Players were stationed on the TCS Tiger's Claw, a space cruiser reminiscent of the World War II carriers of old, a major inspiration for the game. You played as a new recruit flying missions to defeat the Kilrathi, giant cats bent on universal domination in between naps on the windowsill and licking empty cans of tuna. Roberts wanted cutscenes rendered in a way that never broke the immersion. Even the player's guide was a faux operations manual from the Tiger's Claw. Anything to suggest to the player that they were part of a desperate battle against killer cats from space, and it was super fun! The game was retitled yet again to Wing Commander, and it was released in September of 1990. It had its share of technical issues, mostly due to the wild array of hardware possibilities in home computers, so no two PCs were guaranteed to be the same, and thus the game could not be optimized for every PC, only the best at the time. Later models would play the game too fast or too slow, depending on the computer's processing speed. The graphics are incredibly primitive now, but they were groundbreaking at the time, and the use of cinematic cutscenes, stereo sound, and joystick-driven flight made Wing Commander an instant and massive hit. In 1991's computer gaming world, the bible for PC game enthusiasts of the time, Wing Commander landed squarely at the top of the reader's poll until the release of Wing Commander 2, when it took the top spot and Wing Commander was bounced to number 2. Everyone who played the games loved them. And here's where we get slightly anecdotal. Wing Commander 3 Heart of the Tiger was released in 1994. Not only did the graphics of the cockpit view increase in quality, everything about the game felt genre-defining. The cutscenes were replaced with full-motion video scenes with real actors in front of a green screen. And by real actors, I mean Mark Hamill, aka Luke Skywalker, uh, Malcolm McDowell from A Clockwork Orange and a million other things, John Rice davies from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Tom Wilson, aka Biff from Back to the Future, and even adult star Ginger Lynn, who I have only ever seen in this game and not the pornography she is most known for, which tells you the kind of nerd I am. So there was drama between the characters and a real Star Wars-inspired story about finally ending the Kilrathi War with the aid of the special Excalibur experimental vessel. It was incredible. I played the game multiple times on PC, where it looked and played best, but I played it again when it made its way to the original Sony PlayStation. I kind of want to play it right now. It was also, much like Jaws and Star Wars, seen as a mixed blessing. The fact that the game was built to run on the best computers spurred many PC owners to upgrade their hardware just to play the original Wing Commander and its sequels. The series pushed the envelope of what computer gaming could be and as such, other games looked weak in comparison, and so like films before, 
the age of the video game blockbuster had arrived. And just like movies, the same criticisms were applied. These games were pushing out the smaller games in favor of the big, splashy extravaganzas. And to further marry our themes tonight, let's follow this line in Chris Roberts' career when he went from making well-regarded video games to deciding he wanted something more. Wing Commander had always been cinematic in its presentation. With a number of successes in the game world at his back, Roberts pitched the idea for a live-action adaptation of the Wing Commander series. He wrangled a deal where he would direct the film from a script devised by Roberts himself and the screenwriter of the successful Mortal Kombat film, Kevin Dorney. The cast included some up-and-comers like Freddie Prinze Jr., who did all those I Know What You Did Last Summer movies, uh, Matthew Lillard, fresh off Scream, Saffron Burroughs, who would find more success with Deep Blue Sea, Checky Cario as Paladin, who had been in Goldeneye not long before, our old pal Jurgen Prochnow shows up as a racist, and David Warner, who you know as the villain from everything, is there to class up the joint. The budget was set at $20 million, though it would creep up to about $24 million by the time all was said and done. Roberts was a new director and had never had a ton of discipline when it came to deciding what to include or dismiss from his work, and there was no war inspector over his shoulder to guide him. The Kilrathi effects looked terrible in pre-production, and they didn't improve much, something Roberts blamed on a lack of pre-production. The time to ramp up for production only lasted three months, which is thin for effects-heavy projects that can sometimes require six months or more of prep work before shooting begins. The production design was shifted away from the industrial look of the games, fearing that the sets would invoke the style of Star Wars too much, which, keep in mind, was about to release the first of its prequel films. Roberts says that, as much as anything, informed some of the bad decisions. Get out of Star Wars's lane, even if that lane had been exactly where Wing Commander fit. Or at least the games did. So it was rethought and reshuffled and redesigned until there was no more pre-production and it was time to shoot this movie. Freddie Prinze Jr. said later, quote, I can't watch one scene of that movie. I read the script and I loved it. So did my buddy Matthew Lillard. We both got the parts. We went on location and they said, here's the new script. It was a piece of shit. From that piece of shit script, Roberts created a movie that was totally not like Star Wars and so deviated wildly from the game he created. The result was a movie that was so detached from the source material, game fans didn't much care for it, and the general public certainly couldn't be expected to, on account of it being so bad and all. Roger Ebert, space critic of Pick 6 Movie, said at the time, quote, These actors, alas, are at the service of a submaronic script and special effects that look like a video game writ large. It only made a hair over $11 million, so it was both a critical and commercial bomb. At least it's consistent. Roberts went on to make more movies, though he didn't direct any of them. He produced that John Travolta Punisher movie, and Lucky Number Slevin, and Lord of War, and something called Who's Your Caddy. But it was always games that held the most success for Roberts, and in 2012, he announced a Kickstarter campaign for a game called Star Citizen, an extension of his own Wing Commander series. Only instead of ship-to-ship -ship combat, it's, well, everything. Role-playing game, space shooter, farm simulator. In theory, anything you ever wanted to do in space, Star Citizen will let you do. Only it's not out yet, all these years later. The game has racked up over $250 million in revenue 
from Kickstarter backers and pre-sales and dummies like me that pre-ordered a game that doesn't exist just because of how much we love Wing Commander. But what about this movie, huh? Built on the legacy of Star Wars and then hampered by its own heritage, Wing Commander exists as a movie that denies itself. And so, what's left? Well, for that answer, let's get Chad in the co-pilot seat, aim our reticles at some space cats, and fire the photon torpedoes of fun at this crackpot space saga. Ladies and gentlemen, Kilrathi and Pilgrims. It's 1999's Wing Commander. Hey everyone, welcome back to Pick 6 Movies. I, of course, am Bo Ranstell, the wing commander for this episode. But here, my co-pilot, as always, Chad Cooper, how are you, sir? I'm good. Wing Commander is the name of the movie we're talking about. (laughs) It is. Yeah, I was being real clever. Uh, in much the same way this movie is, because it's so smart. It's 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 dealing with very complicated themes, Chad. Um, and I can't wait to get into it, because I think good movies, good art, Chad, mm-hmm. uh, ultimately illuminates the human condition. It, it, it tells you something about yourself, about the world around you that you either had not considered or could not necessarily experience in your own life. And- I think a lot about Savant's the hidden painting. I think a lot about uh, Trepatou's um, The Nineteen Stairs. I think about Emilier's House of Women and Children. Mm. Um, all of these movies truly encapsulate things that I just made up that only make sense to me, much in the same way the screenwriter of this film wrote a screenplay that only makes sense to him and or her. Because I didn't bother to look up who wrote the screenplay because it's complete and total garbage and this movie is a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, it's a bunch of crazy make-em-up, Shad. There's no getting around it. It's uh, it's <laughs> it's nuts, man. It's like listening to to Manson talk. It's just it's full of sci-fi garbledygook bullshit that don't make no sense to nobody except for one person, and that person ain't around. It sure as hell ain't me. <laughs> yeah, it's look. We kind of discussed this off air, but on paper, Chad, let me let me pitch this movie to you and and to the listeners in a way that may make it sound like something other than uh, as referenced in in the intro the pile of stinky poo-poo that it is. You have a a space adventure, Chad, where a a young hot dog pilot and his best pal are going off to war. But it's a space war against a vicious alien race. And better yet, it's kind of going to be about like ship-to-ship combat, the way that those classic like World War II movies were like Operation Pacific and stuff like that. But it's Mm -hmm. in space. It's going to be dealing with like a threat to the very existence of Earth itself, and it's up to our scrappy band of heroes to save the day and prevent this invasion. How does that sound, Chad? Are you talking about this movie? I mean, on paper. Because <laughs> don't none of that happen. It tries to, but yeah. it doesn't. It kind of does, but just in the most boring way possible. <laughs> And, you know, when we talked about uh, House of the Dead in particular, and I apologize because this, of course, is a selection of mine, because I knew, I had pre-screened this, and I knew how fucking boring it was. And I knew that we were both going to watch it 
at least twice. Why do you hate me? <laughs> I don't. I love our listeners, Chad. My crime is loving too much. You ask anybody. I picked three movies that were awful that people maybe saw that were kind of sort of really kind of awful. You picked three movies this season that were just gutter trash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really went to the cinematic soup kitchen this season, and I apologize for that. But, but, Chad, I think it's going to make uh, some good times for us and our listeners. <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's let's jump in. So, uh, we open up on uh, some space charts, uh, or something. It's just a bunch of, like, stars, and it's like, hey, go here for space. And uh, over the top of that, we get JFK... <laughs> Yes. Give, given the big inspiring space speech about, you know, we throw the hat over the fence. We go after the hat because it is there, uh, you know, or what, however that speech goes. But it's real inspiring and shit. Marilyn Monroe, you put your hand in my pants, not because it's easy, but because it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I unbuttoned that button because it was there. <laughs> because I had to see what was beneath. JFK gets the opening line of dialogue in this motion picture. The only way it could have been better is if it had been like wing commander for mom like we're not even waiting till the end but the wing commander title like unfolds on the screen all dramatic like and music swells and all that and it feels like a real deal space movie absolutely the soundtrack of this movie was a double effort by david arnold and kevin kenner and it is kind of the best part of this whole movie. These two guys work together um, on a couple of different projects. One of the ones that uh, David Arnold worked on was uh, Stargate SG-1. And he also had uh, quite a few scores under his belt. He worked on Independence Day. He worked on Godzilla. He worked on the original uh, Stargate and the James Bond movie Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, Kenner um, composed the credits for Leprechaun and Land of the Lost. Mm -hmm. So I think we pretty much much know who was doing the heavy lifting on the soundtrack of this movie yeah i well it was clearly the land of lost guy before he started slumming it he did this and just kicked up his feet for the rest of his career the soundtrack for this movie is really really wanting to be a john williams score I went to IMDb and I fully expected it to say Juan Williams as the composer of the soundtrack, but it wasn't. Did you do this score? See. <laughs> do you mind if I pay you in pesos? That's racist. It is. Yeah. It, speaking of racist, oh my goodness, folks, we'll get to it. So over the credits still, because we're, we're still doing that, There, uh, there's dialogue, but this is kind of future presidents or something, and mm -hmm. they're talking about founding new colonies and like humanity is reaching out into the stars, which is more poetic than anything you'll hear in this movie. But it's all got this weird garbled like FDR type of a voice soundtrack. Like somehow audio recordings in the future didn't get better. They're all like that they were recorded on vinyl and there's a lot of like here we are on X-Force 17 finally putting our flag in another planet beyond that of our solar system. We have just launched our first space dirigible. Oh, it's on fire. Oh, the humanity. The space humanity. <laughs> Thank you for correcting that. That's exactly what it should have been. 
But we're also seeing this symbol that's kind of a cross, wink, wink. And this is where we start to hear about, like, the Kilrathi, which are the, the villains of this movie. They're the cutest little villains. As Hold a- on a moment. <laughs> yeah. The Kilrathi. Uh-huh. That, that's what we're doing here. We're taking a mashup of the word kill and the word wrath. Mm-hmm. And those are our bad guys. Well, they were originally the murder Benji, and that seemed... <laughs> A little too on the nosy. Bo, I know it's early in the episode, uh-huh. but I got a little uh, a little quiz for you. Wow. This is a record. This is the <laughs> earliest quiz we've ever done. I'm excited about this. Let's do it. It's a little game I like to call, which name is better for a race of space aliens? The Kill Rafi or one of the following? Okay. <clears throat> you have to tell me which is a better name for a race of space aliens, the Kilrathians, or one of the following. Okay. The Murder Furyites. I think Kilrathi is better than that. How about the Mad Murderitians? Ooh, that Mad Murderitians is real good. Yes. Assassin Angertons. <laughs> Kilrathi, just because I can't pronounce the other one. The Aggressive Rubouters. I, Kilrathi, I still uh, has it there. Revigitons every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Slaughterarians. Slaughterarians. Exterminate Pistophians. Kilrathi. Termitantoriums. Uh, Kilrathi again because of the tongue twister. The Dark Helmets. Oh, Kilrathi. The Angry Birds. If they were called the Angry Cats, now you got something. But no, I'm going to go with Kilrathi over Angry Birds because fuck that movie. The Bruce Valanchians. Bruce Valanchians. Violent Femmes. Violent Femmes. Megadeths. Kilrathi. Iron Maidens. Iron Maidens. How about the Death Cab for Cuties? Yes. Yes, de- <laughs> Death Cab for Cuties. Kilrathians? Uh-huh. That's what they came up with? Not Kilrathians, <laughs> just the Kilrathi. <laughs> All right. I, well, that's how you say it. You're from the northern part of Kilrathia. In the southern part, it's a little bit different. As someone, as the introduction might have implied, Chad, that... <laughs> Played all the Wing Commander games and the uh, the spinoff uh, Privateer, which allowed you to be a space pirate, Chad. It was the Kilrathi. Trust me. So we're now at war with the Kilrathi, and and the last thing we hear in the uh, the dumb opening is somebody saying, "And God help us all." The plot of this movie is incoherent and it doesn't make any sense in the traditional way that a movie would make sense and i know we say this a lot on this show and i repeated about every 10 minutes when we talked about tomb raider but this movie makes the slapdash chronology of Lara croft's adventures look like the taut plot of humpty dumpty i watched wing commander twice i read the wikipedia entry detailing the plot of Wing Commander no less than three times, and I still have no idea what this movie is about or what happens. <laughs> well, good luck learning anything in this episode, Chad. <laughs> I ain't got no answers for you. But, but all right, so we we out of the credits, we go to, in the cradle of an asteroid, mm-hmm. is the Pegasus base. Yeah, it's, it's Gizmotic Institute uh, <laughs> it's... in the not-too-distant future. I think it's next Thursday A.D., it's real shitty CGI. Like, time has not been kind to the effects of Wing Commander. Like, I can still go back and watch Jurassic Park and, and, and do fairly regularly and enjoy that just fine. Like, the effects are, there, there are some seams for sure, but it still holds up pretty well. Right. Wing Commander ain't got that problem. Uh, it looks like a real dog turd effects-wise most of the movie. <laughs> But we get a crawl, not a crawl, but like an insert that says, hey, it's 2654, which I do like about this movie that it's not like, it's 2213. And you're like, no fucking way. We are never, not in 200 years. Uh Uh-uh. That ain't us. 
So you're saying in 700 years into the future, the level of douchebaggery and computer graphics have somehow gone backward in time. Yes. One thing about this movie is it tries to go for this kind of industrial lived-in look like you see in Star Wars, where it's like, oh, this is kind of a grungy future. You're being so kind to this movie. It does that, but it all looks so cheap. Yeah. So it looks like those, you know, I mentioned them on a previous episode, but like those Italian Star Wars knockoffs, like mm-hmm. that's the production value. Anyway, so we're at this stupid Pegasus base and mm-hmm. inside there's a dude with a real dumb hat manning a console. There's like random lackeys. I counted three of them on this giant spaceship. Maybe there were only two, but let's let's highball it and call it three on a spaceship that should hold no less than what a thousand employees. Well, they mention like, oh, there are thousands of people on this base. I mean, you don't I see count them. three. Right. But so much of this movie is like watching characters looking out a window saying, well, would you look at that? That's an incredibly exciting space battle. Are we to assume that these lackeys are good guys and not bad guys? Because we don't know. As far as we know, they're just dudes. You know, we've got no take on this at all. Until about 100 spaceships show up flying overhead, clearly preparing to fuck up this space base and the two or three people that we know are inside. And then a bunch (laughs) of warning sirens begin to blare outside of this space base because this is space and that's what you do when someone attacks. You sound an auditory alarm, Jesus Christ, to let everyone know, you know, in space that you are being attacked with sound that travels through space. Mm -hmm. Oh, we'll get to the trails of smoke left by... Our space torpedoes in a bit. I'm surprised that they don't squeal out their space stations and leave tire marks in space in the shape of a figure eight as they haul ass away from the from the fuzz. I like the idea of leaving skid marks in space. <laughs> Doing donuts in the Vega system. As soon as the dummy in the hat steps away, all these ships show up and just start bombing the shit out of the Pegasus base. And then, like, Admiral What's-His-Face shows up on on the bridge and is like... Doesn't matter. Right. It's like, what's going on? And they're like, uh, these Kilrathi, they're, they're blowing us up, sir. Station breaches. Security level 13. More made-up bullshit that doesn't mean anything. Right. And so they're like, well, we've got to get rid of that thing over there, the Pegasus navcom the sears diehard battery (laughs) with with just like a shitty pegasus which probably came on the battery when they bought it it's important and it does something what does it do shut your mouth it's important yes sir aye aye captain that may be the movie's fatal flaw is it comes up with a bunch of sci-fi who's it's and never explains what they are the whole movie's that. The whole movie is <laughs> yeah. just filled with just confectionary nonsense. It's boggling how much happens in this movie that is just boring and worthless. Well, all right. but So here's the point where I kind of fall in love with this movie a little bit. Because the Admiral is like, we got to hit the self-destruct button. So he orders a dude to do that. And the dude hits the button. He's like, it don't work, sir. <laughs> like our self-destruct button is broke. <laughs> How do you test a self-destruct button? You hook it up the first time and you're assuming it's going to work. Right. Well, you know, <laughs> you, well, what you're doing is you're outsourcing to the lowest bidder in self-destruct companies. 
<laughs> and it's like, oh yeah, that thing's gonna blow up. Don't worry about it. Well, should we like test it or something? Hey, no. look, you want it to self destruct? Because that's what you hired me to do is make the goddamn thing blow up. So if you want to blow it up, be my guest. Immediately, that dude went out and got into his work truck spaceship, and he was like, <laughs> right? It's just a car battery. Anyway, so after the the self-destruct button don't work, the Admiral then takes a gun and tries to shoot the window in, and the glass is too good. It's too protective. So then he just, like, bangs on it as if that was going to do more than the bullets would. It was like back in the day when those old-timey bad guys would fire off all their rounds at Superman, and at the end, they would throw their empty gun at him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like yeah maybe this will work anything it reminded me of that scene from airplane where they're smacking the woman who's gone hysterical and the camera <laughs> pulls back and there's like somebody with a bat and brass knuckles and like it just kept going and the end result is nothing it just like then the Kilrothi bust in in their armor and we don't really get a look at them this movie feels like a zucker abrams zucker movie that a horribly sadistic person person came in and edited out all the jokes it is it like it looks intentionally cheap at times but it also takes itself so seriously yes, yes. that it, it is strangely absent of humor and i know we'll get into some of the moments where it tries to be funny but it also also feels like a movie that would be ripe for mystery science theater 3000 to just crack jokes a to z like there are so many moments that are so not just like self-aggrandizing but it, it just takes itself so seriously that it's easy to throw punches at the movie as it's happening not the kind of jokes that we make on this show but just stuff that happens in in like foreground background Mm -hmm. just juxtaposition of juxtaposition of characters it's it's just it's terrible to our point earlier about how stuff happens in this movie with no explanation, the Admiral, like as the Kilrathi are busting in, he hits some button and a spaceship flies up or something. And when I first watched it, I was like, oh, they must have ejected, like they didn't have a self-destruct, but they had some eject for this Navcom thing. The, the car battery. The car battery. But that doesn't seem to be the case because whatever was in the spaceship is never mentioned again. Or if it was a spaceship at all, who knows what the fuck it was. I took it that the car our battery was in the little spaceship right but then later we find out that they have the Kilrathi have spoilers for wing commander the Kilrathi have the car battery so did they get it from the spaceship did they just like again this movie does not bother to explain the details of the very thing we're supposed to care the most about and in in theory you know the MacGuffin of the movie uh is, is this nav system but it just don't matter let's cut to David Warner oh he who classes up the join a little bit (laughs) hello movie character actor david warner shows up and he is the commander of something he's admiral tallwin just to be he he is replacing malcolm mcdowell from the games uh so it's a step up as far as i'm concerned i love malcolm mcdowell to death don't get me wrong david warner i mean come on He was Jack the Ripper in time after time. I like that he's got this doughy second in command where you're like, clearly, to be in the military in this space unit, it's like, can you touch your toes? Close enough. Come on board. Fat Smithers here is like, oh, sir, you're never going to believe what happened. Uh, The Pegasus system blew the fuck up. He's like, 
what what did you say to me and he's like yeah 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 the uh, apparently they they got the their nav system which again i'm making a lot of leaps of logic here people yes you are <laughs> but i think the deal is that this nav system tells the car battery the car battery tells the kilrathi the how to make these jumps in space that gets them to earth and i think that none of this is explained but that's what i believe to be the case i've never seen a movie in my life where the bad guys are as absent in a movie as this one yeah no we saw the Kilrathi show up at the beginning and that's it for a while but you don't even see them you see more of the shark in jaws than you do of any of the bad guys in yeah. this movie yeah that's right. And I'm including like a dorsal fin, a little splish splash. There's no bad guy. There's no Darth Vader. There's nothing. They're just this abstract and frightening name. Right. Well, until you do see them and they look ridiculous. Just, you, well, oh, you know what? Let's well, say you're right. that. Yeah, you're right. So <laughs> David Warner is like, so what, what does that mean, Fat Smithers? And he's like, well, sir, uh, they can get to Earth in 40 hours. And David Warner's like, well, that sucks. How long is it going to take us? And he says, 42. And he's like, fuck. So David Warner says, are there any ships in the Vega system, which is where the Pegasus was? And he's like, we need to we need to have somebody see what's up and see if they have this nav system and all that kind of thing. And Fat Smithers is like, the only things out there are this battle carrier, space battle carrier called the Tiger Claw. And there's a merchant ship called the Diligent. And the reason that I mention all that is because the way that David Warner says diligent is why he's amazing. Like that moment was like, wow, this movie sucks, but he is awesome. And he says uh, that he wants to talk to somebody named Taggart, who is the captain of the diligent and also his first Lieutenant, who is Freddie Prince Jr. Yes. So <laughs> all that stuff happens, which makes it sound like something exciting is right around the corner. But what happens instead is we cut to Freddie Prince Jr. And he's wearing one of those cross things that we saw in the title credits. And he's reading the Odyssey. And it's like, nice try, Wing Commander, but you are not smart booking your way out of this stupid. I watched this twice, and I didn't even catch that. There's I, a lot of Odyssey. Like, we'll get to it in a second, because this movie can't sit on a good idea for too long. It's like when a kid has a secret, and he can't wait to tell you. So he's just, just kind of drifts around you a little bit, and then is like, hey, you ever... Anybody ever tell you any secrets before? And you're like, yeah, all the time. He's like, I got one. And you're like, yeah, I know you do. So just spill it already. And that's kind of this movie because it's like, oh, look, he's reading the Odyssey. And you think that's going to matter like somewhere later in the movie? Uh-uh. Yeah, it don't. No, it don't. next scene. <laughs> next scene. We can't sit on that. So Taggart, who is played by uh, Checky Cario, who uh, has one of the greatest names to say in all of cinema. And Taggart is the French-sounding cap. Hello, Freddy Prince Jr. We got quite a space adventure on our hands. He's like, oh, I got the communication from Admiral Tawin. But it sounds like he's just spitting granola at Freddie Prince Jr. when he talks. I just wanted him to like every scene walk to walk in and just be like, ah, Lewitt. 
Dejante Alouette. Oh, oh, Freddy Prince Jr., are you ready for adventure? How about we sing a jante tune? La mer. <laughs> it's like being on, on the ocean, only we're in space. So he says, like, Admiral Talwin, he's got a big job for us. I am the captain, and you are the first mate. Promotions will follow quickly. <laughs> we still race sail out here. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. And so... Fortunately, Admiral Tallwin has sent them a CD. Well, he sent them data, and fortunately, the the, the diligent has right. a CD burner built right into the ship dash. Well, it's, it's 700 years in the future, and somehow technology went backward. Well, you know, sometimes I like to make a mix CD. Put on a little Dave Matthews. Just aim for a star and go, baby. Maybe I could put this CD in for you. Maybe Friday night. Maybe Saturday night. How about maybe right now? <laughs> like, who are you talking to? I mean, <laughs> I'm your first mate. Oh, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Just you and me. A little candle. A little wine. How about we just take the CD to the Tiger Claw? All right. <laughs> but maybe after, you know. Um, anyway, so Pepe Le Captain is like, hey, we got to take this to the, the spaceship, uh, what is here in the Vegas sector with us. So they're on their way, but th- then Tallinn says, because Fat Smithers is like, hey, do you think they're actually going to do this? He's like, oh, 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 I fought with Blair's father. And then he says, all right, put in Beacon 147. <laughs> It's a shortcut. There's there's that point where Tagger is like, just punch in Beacon 147. And it's like, what does that mean? Are we going there? Is, is it a spaceport? Is it... Just explain what the fuck is happening in this movie for two seconds, if you would. You stop resisting me, and I'll stop resisting you. <laughs> Every time I walk by you, it is a fight. And one day, I will lose. Where are you, my little object of art? I am here to collect you. (laughs) Captain, this is wildly inappropriate. You said we have a mission from the Admiral. That is true. But why not mix business with pleasure? You are my peanut. I am your Britel. So, Freddie Prince Jr. just shows up in Frenchie's cabin. (laughs) Right into my lair. And it's like, hey, uh, you got an antique compass. That's pretty cool. And uh, he's like, uh-huh, just like the cross you wear. I notice. I look at your chest. Give it to me. Let me see. And then we get this speech from Taggart about the pilgrims and how they were like these explorers out in space. And, and he says, since they were defeated, not a single new star has been charted. And then he hits a button and a dagger comes out of the end of it, which feels like it ought to be important, Chad. But I assure you, that is the one and only time you will ever see that in this movie. Yeah, it doesn't matter at all. No. So then they all fall back in, in their chairs like it's Star Trek. 
We're like, whoa, somebody just put their foot on the gas. Taggart is like, oh, damn him. And like rushes to the bridge. And now we we meet Maniac as played by Matthew Lillard. There's a scene where David Warner tells Freddie Prince Jr. that he fought alongside his father in the Pilgrim Wars. And that's why he's sending him on this transmi- this mission. Yes. They rush to the bridge of this little ship. And it turns out that the reason that Taggart is so pissed off at Matthew Lillard putting the hammer down uh, on the ship is because the Beacon 147 that they were headed to was a marker for what's called a gravity well. And if they come in too fast, they're going to get sucked into it. It's basically a black hole. But, Chad, because this movie can't stand how smart it is. If you <laughs> if you remember Freddie Prince Jr. reading The Odyssey mere right. moments before, Frenchie is like, oh, the gravity well, she is called Scylla. Which, by the way, was in the Odyssey. Maybe you read it. I know you did. I watch it. Sometimes I come into your, your cabin and your book is just, it is open on your chest. You are the corned beef and I am the cabbage. The corned beef is nothing without the cabbage, my sweet coquette. From now on, you are just Freddy Prince. There is no junior. You are the only Freddy Prince to me. The game of love is never called on the count of doctors. My little midnight snack. <laughs> anyway, when Frenchie mentions the Scylla, immediately Freddie French Jr. is just like, I was just reading that. And the camera cuts to Maniac after the information drops like, oh, if we're coming in too fast, we're going to ca- get caught by the gravity well and it's going to kill us all. And Maniac is Matthew Lillard. Yes. And he has this real, like, zoinks moment where he Uh just looks stupidly scared. As if none of this science makes any sense to him at all. Matthew Lillard in this movie is strangely albino white. He looks as if, though, a Q-tip came to life. He's got this weird bleach blonde hair. His eyes are just naturally wide set. But through the whole movie, he has this awkward, stoic nature about him that is intertwined with being kind of the wild card of the movie but he's not really he is reckless but he's not like he's not a good time guy he is a real jerk from, from jump because he almost gets him killed initially and so they're headed for this gravity well here is where i started asking myself chad why are they the crew of this ship what is going on here how did they meet because taggart is being a real asshole to them but are they actually part of his crew because he doesn't act like that there's just no information being handed out by this movie i would add to that list of questions huh (laughs) what the the reason i asked that question is because the next thing he does is like you my little leclerc how about you turn the navcom off you just pilot us into this super dangerous gravity well. Freddie Prince Jr. sits down. He's like, oh, okay, sir. And he like clickety clacks his fingers on this one hand keyboard and punches in a bunch of numbers that doesn't mean anything. And then hooray, Freddie Prince Jr. has saved the day. Not that you would know anything from watching this movie, including the editing, the dialogue, the acting, the music, the lighting. Nothing in this scene really explains what happened or how you should feel while watching it 
it, it's all incomprehensible. Like, you need that person to turn to the camera. Like, you need the Ben Kenobi that's like, it flows through us, it's around us. Like, you need that character to explain to the audience via Luke Skywalker, hey, here's what's up. Here's what the Force is. Here, Here's the basics for what you need to know about this universe. This movie doesn't have that character because everyone is kind of in the know but the audience which is not where you want the audience to be, you know, on the outside looking in. And the, when we get on the other side of this gravity well or whatever, then Frenchie, uh, Captain Taggart, is like, Captain Blair, you just plotted the course through a gravity well in under 10 seconds, and no navcom can do that. And you're like, okay, that sounds important. I don't know what any you, of it means, <laughs> but all right. You can call me streetcar because... Of my desire for you. The other thing I really love in this scene is after Matthew Lillard is like, oh my God, you got us through. You're the second best pilot at the Academy. And Taggart looks at him and just goes, shut up. He does stuff. He's like, oh, he's like, shut your mouth or I'll take you and your any Linux hairdo and dump you into space. <laughs> he just runs him up one side and down the other. And it's fantastic because it's exactly how I felt about Matthew Lillard's character as well. Like if we could just eject him from the movie right now, we'd all be better off. Absolutely. At this point in the movie, I noted that this feels like a poorly funded big screen adaptation of the SNL sketch Space Cats, but without the jokes and self-deprecating humor or the high quality special effects that was used in that comedy sketch. <laughs> yeah, the production value of Space Cats is notably better than that of Wing Commander. A little bit later, I was like, holy fucks, this is Space Cats. But we'll talk about that a little bit. Later. It totally is. So our heroes, question mark, arrive at, <laughs> on the Tiger Claw. And we get our first look at the awful ship design of the fighters, which look like you sliced off the front end of the, the ships from Battlestar Galactica and replaced the front end with the lips of that guy that stuffed all the cigarettes in his mouth for the Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah. It looks terrible. This whole movie feels like they took the boring parts of shitty 90s era Star Trek sequels and the editing room scraps of the Star Wars prequels and somehow mashed them together to make a movie that is exponentially worse than what you would expect based on the combination of those ingredients. Uh-huh. Speaking of this movie being terrible, let's get to the bridge of the Tiger Claw where we meet uh, Captain Sansky, who is played by... By, uh, David Suchet, who is also Hercule Poirot. From here on out, I'm calling him Poirot. Fair enough. That's who he is. He looks like Poirot. He's doing this poor man's version of Picard. It's awful. He could not be lower energy in this role if he were asleep. I agreed. He just does. He seems to be sleepwalking through this entire movie, which is probably the right call. If he were asleep and some production assistant had their finger on his bottom lip, moving it up and down <laughs> to simulate that he was talking, even then it would be equal to the level of effort he gives in this film. Yep. And he's a very good actor as Poirot. In this movie, he's just doing the bare minimum of, of being a <laughs> conscious human being. Like at one point in the movie, he probably just stopped talking altogether, which is why they conked him on the head and removed him from the last scenes where he was just like, no, I'm not going to say any more of these things. It's terrible. But on this ship, there's another commander. 
And yeah. instead of calling him commander, I want to call him captain because I got confused in my notes. And he's horribly racist. It's it's returning champion this season, yes. Jurgen Proch now from House uh-huh. of the Dead. Yep. Playing a captain there as well. And yeah, he is a real pilgrimist, uh, as uh-huh. we learn quickly. When he's like, th- they introduce, you know, like, hey, this is uh, Captain Taggart, and this is Freddie Prince Jr., and he's going to be joining the crew. Hey, your mama was a pilgrim. We don't take too kindly around half-breed pilgrims around here. Your daddy was a white nationalist, right? He believed in the purity of races. We ain't got no problem with that. We have a problem with pilgrims around here half breed it a hundred percent is half breed half breed pilgrim what 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 you got pilgrim colors on at this point you're like is this movie about racism or acceptance or something (laughs) well earlier you were like are we singling out people because of their faith their christianity is christianity a proxy for other forms of religion or faith-based ideologies that you're going to be discriminated against maybe i don't know i I mean it's utter nonsense but what i do like is that poirot kind of shuts it down pretty quick i mean real low energy but as he's like you half-breed pilgrim and he's just like stop it and that's kind of the end of the scene i like that freddie prince jr and talking to this racist guy he's like you don't have to worry sir my mom and dad are dead and you're like what does that have to do with anything i don't care that your parents are dead i care that your dna is all mixed up with pilgrims and white folk or something all we know about the pilgrims so far is that they used to be like space pilots Right. And that clearly Captain Taggart is one of them. (laughs) So Matthew Lillard and Freddie Prince Jr., now that they're on the Tiger Claw, which apparently, Chad, is why they were on the Diligent in the first place was to get to the Tiger Claw where they're going to be new pilots. And we learn this now after they've already done the thing. (laughs) So, you know, that's good storytelling to let you know what just happened, I guess. Once they get on the Tiger Claw, they're walking around on the deck of this big spaceship. And there are a bunch of smaller fighter spaceships just parked all over the place. And Freddie Prince Jr. and Matthew Lillard, you know, they're going to be kind of what the new hotshot pilots on the Tiger Claw. Good God. And then Freddie Prince Jr. gets in the like the cockpit of some random spaceships and he just starts beep bop booping on buttons. And it's here that actress Saffron Burroughs shows up and her name is what? Angel? Angel, yes. And she's doing what? Her best Angelina Jolie impersonation? It's it's a real dick move on her part where she surprises, uh, she's in this orange jumpsuit and she surprises Freddie Prince Jr. who's playing space captain in his ship. He's like, pew, boop, 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 beep, bing, pew, 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 pew. I'm, I'm the captain, meow, meow, meow. Uh, eh, that one's for Jonas. Who should not? And she comes up behind him and she says, you've got two bogeys on your tail. What do you do? Yeah. And he's just like, well, sorry, ma'am. Geez. Uh, I guess I would uh, do this lateral move and then come in behind him. A hundred percent vertical and a 180 into a vertical climb. So then Angel's like, you know what? You're dead and you're taking one up the tailpipe. And then she quizzes him about this other fighter pilot death scenario. And then Freddie Prince Jr. mouths off what he would do to survive in this case. It's basically a rehash of the previous version. And then Angel's like, wrong! You'd take it from both sides in a Kilrathi gangbang. And I'm like, take it up the tailpipe? Gangbang? What kind of movie are we watching here? Oh, 
it's saucy chad also a quick note about her little scenario chad when she's like okay here's the reverse and when she's like you're chasing the, this ship and he's like yeah I, I, if i'm locked on i got this and she's like wrong because there are four ships it was a trap ships you didn't know about and i didn't tell you about they come out of nowhere and kill you <laughs> wrong and i was like well that's unfair like that's a real kobe <laughs> yashi maru scenario where like i don't have all the relevant facts and it reminded me of when i was a kid and we used to play monopoly with my dad and he would hide money under the board and that <laughs> reminded me i need to talk to my therapist angel tells freddie Prince jr i'm your wing commander and, and she also like when he's like i don't have to listen to you you're just a mechanic and she like rips off her jumpsuit like fucking superman to reveal the <laughs> blue pilot suit beneath it. it's like why are you being so deceptive why are like there are ships hiding behind rocks in your scenarios and you're wearing secret clothes over your real clothes like what the fuck is going on here freddie prince jr gives it the real hamana 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 you're my boss but you're a woman Right, yeah, this movie's real progressive and smart, Chad. I think we've pointed that out already. Angel says, if you want to play at being a fighter pilot, I suggest you find yourself at a fun zone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Otherwise, step down from the rapier. And I was just like, his spaceship is called the Rapier? So, real, just let me check off my bingo card here. Take it up the tailpipe, gangbang, rapier. I think I need an adult now. You are not safe with this movie, Chad. It's <laughs> it's a real stranger danger scenario. And then Matthew Lillard shows up to be like, hey, we're assigned here. Oh, man, this is going to be crazy. Right. I'm, I'm maniac. Oh. And he's like, hey, come on, pal. Let's get you to the bar. I don't know where that voice came from. They bust up into the bar <laughs> and Maniac's idea or Matthew Lillard's idea of like the meet and greet for his new friends. His approach is to provoke them into a fight and then defuse it with alcohol. Yeah, that's what's called the John Belushi. It's the Irish handshake, also <laughs> known as the Scottish howdy. Matthew Lillard climbs up on this chair and just arrogantly introduces himself and then whips out a bottle of scotch. And then it's here that we get to meet the character played by Jenny Holder. What was her call sign? Rosie. They just call her Rosie, yeah. She's a black woman, but she also has incredibly bleach blonde hair, just like Matthew Lillard's character. So That's what they bond over, yes. (laughs) Of course, that and alcoholism. With so much in common, how could these two not end up together? Hey, I've got a bottle of peroxide. I've got a bottle of scotch. Will you marry me? I think we're already married. Here is their exchange, Chad. I dictated this. Dictated then read. I probably am using all of that wrong. Oh, bingo. Rapier dictated. There's a ship later called the Broadsword, and I was like, just call it the cock. You know? Send the cock out, sir. It's our biggest (laughs) ship. Uh, So, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Anyway, so this is their verbal sparring. This is what passes for dialogue in this movie. Yes. First to speak is Rosie, and we'll do this rapid fire. You have bowls. You should see them. Mine are bigger. I've been told size doesn't matter. She lied. And then they drink. That is the whole scene. <laughs> An adult typed that on some sort of keyboard, and then other adults said those words out loud. Yeah. That's what happened in the real world. Uh-huh. People spent, Chad, union member crews 
taped down electrical wires and put <laughs> hung lights and people fussed and and fidgeted over camera position and and how the the scene was all going to be lit just right and then <laughs> actors professional actors who have done good work in theory matthew lillard is amazing in twin peaks i don't care what anyone says <laughs> he has one of the most memorable performances in the descendants now i know that's in the future not when this movie took place, sure but i thought it was excellent in that he's great in those scooby-doo movies he's great in scream he is very funny in scream you know what he's terrible in? Wing Commander. <laughs> yeah, so we get this dumb exchange, and then they all drink, and then we cut away from the action. <laughs> this is why this movie is so damn boring, because we have this whole bar scene, and nothing comes of nothing here, other than, oh, I guess Matthew Lillard and, and Rosie are going to do it later. Well, Freddie Prince Jr. then announces, hey, a little earlier I was in a spaceship that belonged to some somebody named Lieutenant Commander Chin. Scratch! <laughs> yeah, everybody like gets quiet and turns to Freddie Prince Jr. He's like, hey, what's everybody looking at me for? <laughs> Some random guy gets up and he says that uh, Lieutenant Commander Chin never existed. And then push comes to shove and this random guy wants to beat the shit out of Freddie Prince Jr. And he rips open his shirt exposing his pilgrim cross and it realizing that he's a, a half-breed young blood or whatever else. And we almost start a fight, but then Angel, the wing commander, remember that's the name of the movie. Mm -hmm. She shows up and she's like, all right, ladies, if you have a problem with Freddie Prince Jr., you got a problem with me. And then he storms off because he's just like, I hate you guys. After like the, the hunter dude calls him a pilgrim. Yeah, a filthy pilgrim. And the thing that is head scratching to me is why Freddie Prince Jr. seems stunned anytime somebody is racist about his pilgrim heritage. Because <laughs> if it's happened twice... On the ship his first day. It's hard right. to believe it never happened before. But sure. but every time someone does it, it looks like, you know, he just watched someone smack a puppy in the face. He's just like, huh? What? How dare you? Uh, Angel chases him out and is just like, hey, by the way, when I say that Chin never existed, well, when you die out here, you don't exist anymore. And he's just like, all right, whatever, lady. You guys are weird. <laughs> to, to further reinforce our racist themes of, of this film, we cut over to uh, the bridge where uh, Hercule Poirot and Taggart and, and Captain Racist are hanging out. And Sansky, or uh, Poirot, is saying, hey, we got this message from Tallwin that says you're supposed to help us navigate this Vega sector to help us find the, these Kilrathi uh, invaders, potential invaders or whatever. And immediately, Captain Kirk is just like, well, wait, hang on just one goddamn minute. Are you trying to tell me this pilgrim motherfucker right here? is going to be gallivanting all around this sector with us. And he's in charge all of a sudden. When did that happen? What in, and pardon my French Frenchie, uh, the fuck? Then Frenchie is like, oh, look what I have. And then tosses a ring over to Hercule Pro, And he looks at it and he's just like, hmm, well... This is really something. All right. He can do whatever he wants. And uh, Captain Race is just like, what the fuck just happened? All I know is that this pilgrim son of a bitch threw you a ring. And if that is a bribe, then I know what is up. QAnon has been right all along about what's going on in Confederation space. 
Yeah, what in the fuck? Look, I did not spend one and a half years in community college for space camp to be able to partially command this ship and put up with bullshit we were throwing rings around. And immediately, Praros is just like, please shut the fuck up. Uh, what this is, this ring has been in Admiral Talwin's family for 16 generations. And you're like, how do you know that, first of all? Like, are you guys that close that you know how old his jewelry is? Or is he just always piping? off about it anyway i got a lot of questions about all this ring shit but then lieutenant talbot frenchy he's like i'll tell you what if you stop resisting me i'll stop resisting you follow my coordinates and we will all be safe for a little bit of <laughs> fun later i'll tell you this is going to give us some extra time and we can use that time to i don't know why don't we just take off our clothes we just start there and whatever comes natural is natural. Poirot points out that the Kilrathians, that they have the Sears diehard battery and that they can find Earth. And then Lieutenant Taggart Frenchy, um, he's like, hey man, we got to make this jump. We leave this thrilling scene on the bridge where we're debating ring heritage to find Matthew Lillard just waking Freddie Prince Jr. up in his bedroom where he's just like, hey man, wake up. And Freddie Prince Jr. is like, what the hell, man? And he's like, hey, you know that cross you're wearing all the time? How about you knock it off? It's really causing a lot of trouble for me. So fuck your heritage and all your rich history and ancestry and all that shit. How about you make it a little easier for me to get laid? But it's who I am. It's what I am. Hey, go along to get along, my man. You need to... <laughs> throw that shit out into space and this is the point where it's like is this just school ties in in space i i have no idea what the message is here i was like is this all about the persecution of christians what is the context for any of this because we still don't know why people hate pilgrim we still have no, no reference point for that and then when you find out you're like well sure I've watched this movie twice, and I still don't know that I understand. All right, so so we cut away from that scintillating scene, <laughs> true believers, to outer space where something really important is happening according to the music. We just cut to David Warner and he's like, Fat Smithers, how fast are we going? And he's like, 110%, sir. <laughs> And David Warner, like, literally, this is the whole scene, people. David Warner just goes, hmm, make it 120. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> it is the dumbest scene in the whole movie. It's just like the seriousness with which he's, how fast? 110? Hmm. I think we can do better. And Ben Smith is just like, all right, sir, I'll tell him. They're, he says go 120%. Like, we can't go over 100%. We are literally going as fast as we can. There is no such thing. It is 100% or an explosion. Those are our two, <laughs> our two options. And we are at the line of explosion, which is 100%. That scene tickled me something fierce. Then we, we cut to, to space, uh, real space, where... Matthew Lillard and Rosie are on patrol and we get more flirty dialogue because this scene apparently is the horniest space movie that ever was. Matthew Lillard flies his plane upside down into the hangar of this spaceship and he lands it like an asshole. And then Rosie flies her plane upside down and to show up Matthew Lillard, she does like a full 360 barrel roll to prove that women can be bigger assholes than men when push comes to shove. 
And then Angel, their wing commander, <laughs> she shows up and she's like, harumph, 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 in my quarters now. So Rosie goes up to Angel's quarters and then Rosie has that bottle of scotch that showed up earlier, but now it's only about 25% full. And then Angel says to Rosie, what were you thinking? And then Rosie says, I wasn't thinking well, not with my head. All I wrote down was a man wrote this movie because sure. no woman would ever speak these words because it is implying that she was what thinking with her vagina. Uh, you know, maybe maybe more specifically her uh, her clitoris. Do you think? I was thinking maybe it was her stomach because she was hungry. You know about maybe you and I are pigs here, and maybe she was thinking with her heart. Oh, you're probably right. Nah, not after the scene before had been all about like, oh, well, you know, you have to have estrogen to be the best pilot. Oh, I think it's testosterone. Oh, we should probably fall. Well, 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 the next scene, Rosie tells Angel as they're drinking scotch that she starts going on about how she masturbates. So it turns out we're not really the pigs. It's the screenwriter. <laughs> it's just some horny dude with his, you know, hand down his pants, typing with one hand. Just being like, oh, yeah, what if these horny pilots just start falling? Fucking, what if they're just slinging web in space left and right? I <laughs> no, mean, you're the pig. I mean, just floating around. I mean, <laughs> we got to be able to do that in one scene, right? We got to affect budget for that, right? I mean, just... It's, it's, yeah, you, def, you definitely need to go talk to your we just about this. <laughs> how about we just rent that vomit comet and get a bottle of Jergens? Gross! Edit all that out. <laughs> Freddie Fritz Jr. stops in to see Lieutenant... Taggart Frenchie to ask, hey, why do I take all this crap? Because I'm part pilgrim. I don't understand any of this. And then Lieutenant Taggart Frenchie, he's like, ha ha ha, sit down, Friday Prince of Juno, and let me explain bigotry, racism, and injustice to you, my friend. No, no, not there on my lap. The pilgrims were early space explorers, and they had something that you would like to call the Force in them. Have you ever seen the Star Wars movies? It's a lot like that. Oh no, you should totally see them, and all this will make us so much more sense. They're really good, not like these. Oh, I can tell you that for sure. This movie we are in is a stinker. Those Star Wars movies, well, the original ones, they are good. The other ones, maybe not so much. What is your name, my little parsnip? I, I keep forgetting. Uh, Christopher <laughs> Blair, sir. Ugh, see. In Star Wars, it is Luke Skywalker. No, it's... <laughs> oh, man, that's a great name. Where? My name's terrible compared to that. Where? Did he wear a cross around? Oh, no. He had, uh, His neck? He had uh, a laser sword and not oh! a cheap-looking <laughs> necklace like you. But... I got mine out of uh, a vending machine. But, hey, one of you is on my lap, one of you is not. Huh? So, who is the winner? I ask you that question. <laughs> Lieutenant uh, Taggart Pritchard, he goes on to say, The pilgrims were part of a super good, amazing f group of people. They could navigate the stars, and you've got that blood in you. And that's why you could do that thing earlier in the movie, 
that nobody paid attention to and cared about, but it's really important, but not really. Finally, Freddie Prince Jr. is like, well, how come everybody gives him such shit then? And Dagger's like, well, you know, it got uh, there at the end, a little dicier with the pilgrims. <laughs> they, uh, you know, how it is when you're out in space for a long time, you get a little lonely. Maybe you get a, an eye for a little first mate and you start to reject your humanity. Uh, Wait, are you saying that I'm an inbred? I, you know, six of one is dozen of another. It don't matter. What matters is you don't mind me unbuttoning this for you, and <laughs> there you are. What a chest. That is good look for you. There are 22 reasons that I was always told that I was special, and I could count them on my fingers and toes. All right? Well, you have like a 12 toes, I think, and... I think maybe I'm Nine fingers. <laughs> Twelve toes and nine fingers. I forget, you know. That's normal. But, and he also says, like, hey, by the way, the pilgrims, they decided they were, you know, gods. You know how you get out here? You get a little wild. <laughs> you think you're superior to the human race and you want to exterminate them. And it doesn't make any sense. Right, and he's just like, you know what? huh, it sounds like they really were something. And he's like, yeah, forget about the genocide part of the, there at the end. That was, whew, we were really flying high then. But, <laughs> but before that, we were really doing something special out here. This is uh, where we come to the thrilling part of the movie, Chad. Uh, where we're going to prepare. For oh, it's happening right yeah, now? Yeah, this is it. What you've been waiting for, for an hour of this movie. Everyone prepares for what is called a level five jump. And that sounds important. <laughs> so, uh, Taggart, of course, Frenchie, is guiding them through uh, the uh, the Ulysses Corridor is where they're headed. <laughs> because the Odyssey, Chad, because this movie's smart. Captain Racist is, of course, complaining because he's like, what do you mean we are going to let him fly us right into this black hole or whatever the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where we're going. Ain't nobody telling me shit. And at last time I checked, I'm the goddamn captain. <laughs> and her Kilbara was just like, oh, stop it. He, he, he is fine. They're making a hyperspace jump in Star Wars, kind of. Only right. what happens is instead of seeing the ship, you know, hurl, hurtling through space or whatever, everything just stops. Time gets paused on the ship and there's kind of a matrix shot. And there's one of uh, Freddie Prince Jr. and Angel where the camera kind of spins around them as they're frozen in time as they're making this jump, but they're not doing nothing, you know? No. It's not like no. they're jumping in the air. They, they're just kind of hanging out. <laughs> It's like, why waste the time and money to even shoot that? Right. It was head-scratching to me. And it was one of those moments of, like, again, where the real world kind of intrudes. And you're like, right. somebody spent time and money to have this very elaborate shot of the actors doing literally nothing. Do you think they used the same camera from House of the Dead to make this happen? Right. You think Jurgen Prochnow was like, look, I know a guy. He's... He's got this camera, and it's pretty amazing. I, I, yeah, it occasionally might kill an actor, but don't worry. Uh, Actually, it's in a dumpster out behind a 7-Eleven. Right. Well, and, you know, as you may remember from that episode, that that movie was the last time they ever used the super dangerous version <laughs> of that camera. It's made out of asbestos, aborted baby souls, broken glass, and Legos that you can step on as you move around it. 
Also, uh, to make it move, you just tie fireworks to it, light them, <laughs> and sometimes they go different places. So they, they make this jump after everything goes Matrix for two seconds. And they're now in the Ulysses Corridor. And the unsung hero of this movie, Mr. Ubuto, who is the black dude on the bridge that they just tell Uh to do all the important stuff, where they're just like, Mr. Ubuto, take us to the the Ulysses Corridor. And he's like, you got it, Captain. At this point, though, this is one of those, like, I think you need to explain this, where Hercule Poirot is like, Mr. Ubuto, go into stealth mode. And he's like, you got it, Captain. And you're like, what? What? Was this on the plate? Like, why weren't we in stealth mode the whole time then? If we're, if we know that the Pegasus thing got blown up and whatnot. I quit overthinking this movie early on. (laughs) This movie does teach you pretty quick, like not to worry too much about nothing. Yes. Hercule Poirot tells Angel to take uh, her, her ships out, like a a squadron of ships out to kind of get an idea of what's going on out there to do what the movie in theory is about, which is them trying to figure out what's up with the Kilrathi. He also tells him, like, hey, don't don't draw any attention when you do this. Like, you know, we don't want to get this whole Kilrathi fleet on our tent. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to stir up the Kilrathi. <laughs> sure. The, it's like throwing a rock at a hornet's nest. Right, but it's one of those points in the movie where you're like, oh right, they're at war with another alien race. There's an antagonist in this movie. <laughs> right. There are villains besides the racism aboard the ship. There there are villains other than the movie itself, because that's who I feel like I'm in battle with. It's like the movie is trying to retell the story of John Lithgow and the Russian guy from 2010, the year we made contact only isn't as sophisticated as even that. No, it's yeah. Yes. No, but yes. (laughs) Now I kind of want, want to watch 2010, the year we made contact. It's a better movie than I think people give it credit for. I thought you were going to say it's a better movie than this, which, let's be honest, everything's a better movie than sure, this. Sure, but I, I think Roy Scheider is actually quite good in it. He has very, very thin legs when you see him at the observation uh, tower at the beginning of the movie when they're trying to sucker him into the <laughs> space strip. He's got shorts on. It was like, God damn, Roy Scheider has very skinny legs. I'll edit that out. No, I won't. Please don't. Roy Scheider thoughts with Bo. Uh, we'll do this every episode, people. You don't have to write in. It's, it's a done deal every episode a little tidbit about my appreciation of roy scheider as an actor skinny legs and all is what we'll call it that's a that's a tom robbins reference it is a tom robbins reference so (laughs) come fast on this show they're out on patrol and freddie prince jr is like hey look at all this metal it came from the pegasus and they're like sure enough freddie prince jr good good eye i guess and then they pick up uh kilrothy ships so the movie does the exciting thing and they hide did you like that when they're in like their battle suits that they have this eyepiece that flops down over one eye i guess what to maybe what help them navigate or target enemies but the eyepiece that flips over is like 80 percent of a full circle and it makes them look a little bit like mr peanut <laughs> It does. It's like a little space monocle. I think it's just because, hey, if you're going to die in space battles, eh, it's nice to feel a little fancy. Well, hello, Kilrathi ship. <laughs> Haven't seen you for a while. <laughs> you know, just kicking up their heels. While they're hiding in this asteroid field, they spot a ship that they uh, call like a command ship, control and command ship or something like that. And they're trying to stay quiet. Shh. <laughs> There are a couple of scenes in this movie where a fucking spaceship, everybody on the ship is like, everybody be quiet. Shh. We don't want the other spaceship to hear us in space. Right. Where there's no sound. (laughs) 
literally, it's a vacuum out there. There's nothing to carry sound. So it just, shh, hey, everybody be quiet. Who's got their radio on? God damn it, Jerry, turn the radio off. It's life and death, Jerry. You're making me loud. They're they're being quiet out in the asteroid field, and then the control of command ship is is scanning around. And Freddie Prince Jr. is like, "Oh my goodness, they spotted you!" Angel is like, "So what do we do?" And he goes, "How about we give him the old Jack in the Box on three? And you're like, "When did you guys start making plays? Like, <laughs> who was the bottle cap in the dirt on this one? Like, when did you stop and be like, "All right, here's our plan. We've got in this scenario." where we are hiding in an asteroid field and we have uh, suddenly been spotted. The play we're going to run is called the Jack in the Box, where we just shoot straight upwards like a Jack in the Box, and then we get the fuck out of there. How about that? And and that's kind of what they do. They jump up and they shoot a couple of ships. But it's just not exciting. It's not like, like none of this is shot well or you don't, it's all CGI kind of crap in terms of what you're watching. But there's no, like, the editing is really flat. There's no kind of excitement to any of the dogfighting because you're not really seeing the ships move around each other a bunch. Well, they all look like a bunch of space submarines. They Everything they fire looks like torpedoes underwater. It's not like lasers. Like, your humans in particular are firing like machine guns essentially at the spaceships right. and it just it just lacks any sense of excitement or or thrills or anything like that it's just like oh this kind of crappy cgi machine gun ship is shooting at this other thing flying around and then eventually one of them blows up and right. it, it, another problem is because we know so little about our enemy we can't really get invested in it because it's like well i just learned that the pilgrims were all a bunch of genocidal maniacs so maybe i'm not so against jürgen proch now in this movie anymore right. and also i don't know anything about this enemy other like, than you mean what they look like who they are what's their motivation sure you don't know anything you right. literally know nothing about the bad guy in this movie at all it's, ever you at least get a look at him here in a bit and i that's something i guess but anyway so after they shoot down a couple of ships it's like hey a bunch more are coming we better get out of here before things get exciting yeah and so they do they go back to the tiger claw and once they get there captain racist is giving them both shit and is like hey how do i know that he didn't say that she was spotted on purpose because it was a false flag operation where he was trying to set her up to fire and get us all fucked because he's a filthy pilgrim and he Dirty. wants us to lose. Mud blood, half breed. Fucking pilgrim half breeds. Ruin it for everybody out here. Everybody on this bridge is a decent, God fearing human being. It's pilgrim motherfucker right over here. Hey, <laughs> hey, hey, pilgrim. Hey, did your mama kill any of my family? Maybe they were all a bunch of homicidal maniacs. And at that point, Freddie Prince Jr. would just have to be like, only at the end. For a while, they were really nice. (laughs) They helped to colonize space until they thought that they were demigods. And then they just randomly murdered people. Anyone they thought was beneath them. Don't tell me you wouldn't do the same, uh, Commander Racism. Hey, we're not talking about me. We're talking about your mud blood, no good mama. I know when I was piloting us through that gravity well, I felt like I touched the face of God. Your God or my God, because that's two different gods, all right? 
In that moment, I knew I was a god. All right, that's it. Where's my gun? Both of them. We are flushing him right out the goddamn airlock right now. I will not have this pilgrim go full Star Trek villain on me right here on the bridge of my ship. At this point, Lieutenant Taggart Frenchy, he comes, he's like, oh, we need to stop all of this fighting. And then Poirot is like, like, shut up, everybody. Do what I say. And then Freddie Prince Jr., we cut over to him talking with Angel. And Freddie Prince Jr. is whining and crying about being a a half-blood pilgrim and how he wears his cross for good luck. And then Angel says, well, I was raised in an orphanage. And she's like, my parents were in the same war that killed your parents. And in this conversation, Angel explains that she is emotionally distant. And then there's some story about her getting close to somebody, but then he killed himself or something. I Did you pay attention to any of that? Yeah. So the guy that she is talking about here was Chen Bossman is, was right. his call sign apparently. Uh-huh. And that was the ship that Blair was, or that Freddie Prince Jr. was sitting in. Beep, boop, boop, boop. Look at me. I'm a pilot. I'm a pilot, everybody. I can fly a spaceship. Beep, boop, boop. Why is there blood all over this? Hey, Matthew Lillard, take a picture of me. I'm a spaceman. Look at me. I'm going to stick my chin out really far. Take a picture of my chin. I wonder what this button does. I think there's holes in the side of the ship, sir. I'm going to blow my nose on this piece of paper that says, read in case of my death. My allergies are really acting up. For my money, Chad, the dumbest part of that scene with Angel is when she's like, I grew up in an orphanage. How do you think I got the name Angel anyway? And you're like, go on. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, because I prayed all the time because I wanted my parents to be angels. What? Is that how that works? So the kids started calling you Angel because your parents died? Ugh. Like, what kind of shitty orphanage did you grow up in? She made that up. (laughs) Right. This is, again, this is the screenwriter just being like, I don't know. Hey, look, uh, one hand is where it belongs. One hand is on the keyboard. We then get to see Matthew Lillard and uh, Rosie snuggling after a fresh round of sex. But they're both fully clothed, I would like to add. You know, they're more maybe maybe it's cold in space. You know? In fact, it's cold as hell. And it's gonna be high. I saw where that was going a minute too late. <laughs> I got had. I was duped. <laughs> it's here that we get to see Matthew Lillard and Rosie and they're all in love. And I don't know why, but I'm always amazed that Matthew Lillard's career did not follow the path of Tom Green or Jamie Kennedy. I was thinking more of a Fisher Stevens, but okay. <laughs> You think he was going to play like an Indian dude in in Short Circuit 3? Hey, have they remade that movie yet? <laughs> Not yet. It's only a matter of time. Hey, casting couch, you are welcome for that Bring little... Matthew Lillard in like, oh, I don't know. Thank you very much. I can make a robot. I am Matthew Lillard. Look at me. I hope this is not cultural appropriation. Was that racist on our part? I think it might have been. I, but I feel like we were on we were anti-racist while doing the voice. <laughs> I don't know. It's a complicated world out there, Chad. 
<laughs> hashtag YouTube. Hashtag not me. Hashtag more time? Question mark. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you, you used a legitimate hashtag? I've, I've never used a legitimate hashtag. All right. And how about an illegitimate one? <laughs> I've only used an emoji once, and it was ironically with my wife. I don't use emojis either, but I find it very funny to describe emojis in texts. Winky face, period. I find that funny. <laughs> Mine's more like gaping asshole. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll throw a few made-up ones in there as well. My uh, butcher knife pumpkin, witch hat. That's my <laughs> Halloween emojis. But you, you write type all that out. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, listeners, if you want to alienate your loved ones, do this. Refuse to use <laughs> emojis and type them out. That's why I want to see the emoji movie just to up my game. Please, please don't. It's Angel is now like Rosie and and, and Matthew Lillard are interrupted in their romp, sex romp because it's like, hey, we got to actually do our jobs out here, and we're actually going to start this movie now. We swear. We cut to the hangar where Angel is giving a really shitty pep talk to the squadron about how like we're going to take it to them and give them one up the tailpipe and then rub one. On their hooter. And <laughs> I like that one pilot who's like, hey, I ain't flying with him. He's a pilgrim. I don't fly with pilgrims. Hey, wings taken. Right. Racism <laughs> is not frowned upon in this space fleet. I mean, Angel, I suppose to her credit, is like, you can fly on my wing. And she, he's like, thank you, sir. <laughs> and Call me, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. Sir. Sir, ma'am. Ma'am, sir. Yeah, she's 100% going to peg him. Um, <laughs> Let's go, ladies. I'm so confused. I'm excited and humiliated, <laughs> but maybe that's what excites me. They're out on uh, this <laughs> patrol mission. Frenchie has gone along in, in his own ship for no good reason. He's just like, I thought maybe I'd go with you guys, see what's going on. Um, and uh, they're like, oh my God, we've got on radar, we've got some Kilrathi ships. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. Those are some stupid tankers. I bet they're attacking the Tiger Claw right now. And they're like, fuck you, old man. We're <laughs> We're going to go blow these things up. And he's like, I didn't want to have to do this, especially with you here, my little cream puff. But I have to tell you, I'm a secret Commodore. Here is my security clearance, Alpha One Niner G7. And Angel is like, let me punch that in. Oh, my God. He is totally <laughs> a secret Commodore in the like intelligence force or some shit. So he's like, I'm pulling rank. We're going back to the Tiger Claw. And they're like, well, you know, you heard the secret Commodore. Time to turn tail and get back home. If you have not tried it, don't knock it. Follow me, adventure away. It's all. Yeah, the closer you are to my backside, the happier I am. <laughs> so there's, there's a great shot like as we cut away from our heroes question mark getting hurrying back to the tiger claw to defend it there is a great shot of the tiger claw itself and there's just a couple of ships like swinging around outside just on patrol or whatever and you hear the radio chatter from a dude who's like uh yeah uh tiger claw this is uh fred uh everything is great out here i mean it couldn't be better it's just the beauty of space and it really puts things in perspective and then he goes wait what the and then immediately explodes and it reminded me, Chad, that is how I want to go. Just a sudden, that uh, turn that quick of just like, boy, everything is just tremendous. Oh, and then done. 
That sounds like the way to go out. You're describing the end of American Beauty. <laughs> yeah, you don't understand, but you will. Oh, oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah. That it turns out Kevin Spacey was the Chris Cooper in that movie all along, <laughs> as it happened. Back on the main ship. Oh yeah, right. Um, I started thinking about how bad American Beauty is in retrospect. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the moment where Captain Poirot he just gets bonked on the head, uh, and he just starts bleeding from his bald scalp. Mm-hmm. And then Captain Racist comes over, and he's like, "Hey, man, you okay? Shit, I think he's dead. Let's just get rid of him for the rest of the movie." Am I in charge now? I think so. Oh, shit is gonna change. All right. First of all, scramble every ship. And uh, and then there is a very unexciting space battle, which is just, I mean, it's kind of what we described before, only it's slightly bigger so that there's maybe 20 ships flying around. We, well, we've never seen our enemy, so we don't really know who they're fighting. They are this faceless abstract threat that's up to something. All right. So here's where I'm going to, do a little fan fiction, Chad. Uh, go it, for it. We haven't done it in this episode yet, really. And so there's a, a shot of uh, space torpedoes being shot. And you can, of course, you know, hear it and, and see smoke trails. And it's all nonsense. But I was thinking, would this have been a better movie if you're going to take yourself seriously to do a much more somber Das Boot-like movie? Which this movie does here in a second. But would that be an interesting movie if you did a like a true kind of space combat film and focused on one ship and one crew and in the middle of a space war? Kind of Das Boot style. Starring Freddie Prince Jr. and Matthew Lillard? No, a real movie, Chad. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, then what you're describing is that Battlestar Galactica miniseries. Oh, yeah, that was good. And that was really good. They did this really, really well. Yeah, you're Go watch right. that. You're right. You're right. <laughs> the, yeah, that first season of Battlestar Galactica is really good. That whole end-to-end, it, it's got its ups and, and downs. And the, the but, end of but it's by the, by, If you look at it as a full collection, it's better than it is worse. Yeah, you are 100% right. And like I said, the first season is incredible, and the first two or three are actually really, really good. Anyway, uh, back to this stupid movie. <laughs> So Angel uh, et al. show back up and save the day. And one of the things that I noticed in this scene is that every time you cut to some one of the pilots in the cockpit where it's like, all right, we've got to go in there and save the tiger claw. They are constantly either putting on or removing their stupid face masks. Yes, so you can see their beautiful, beautiful faces. Right. Or it's like, we're about to get serious. Face mask on, cut back, face mask off. Let me tell you about how serious I was just then. <laughs> and so Maniac, and like they, they've kind of driven the Kilrathi off. Again, this is none of it's very exciting or interesting because, again, we don't have any investment in these villains or what they could mean or we don't know anything about them. And so they're called back to the Tiger Claw and Maniac and Rosie or Matthew Lillard and Rosie, refuse the order to go back to the Tiger Claw. They're too busy having some sexy double entendre back and forth. Right. There, there's some banter going on, and they're, they're shooting down enemy ships in the most dangerous possible way. And then Matthew Lillard goes, like kind of plays chicken with one of these enemy ships, and Rosie gets... 
upset because she's like, no, 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 you need to shoot him. You're too close. And so she's coming in behind him and says, I'm going to shoot if you don't. And so then he finally does shoot. But as the ship explodes, the enemy ship explodes, it hits Rosie's ship and, and damages the engine, I guess. You explaining that made so much more sense than watching it twice or reading the Wikipedia entry on this movie. Yeah. I I still didn't understand what happened. It was basically Matthew Lillard like, oh, check this out. And then Rosie's like, suck my dick. Look at what I can do. Plow, plow. Oh my God. One of my favorite things happens now where, so Matthew Lillard is, is like, hey, you can eject and I'll take you back. And she's like, I can't eject. My ejection thing's broken. Don't Be- make no sense. Well, because nothing in space works. Like the self-destructs, the ejection seats, anything that's supposed to save your life or like be your safeguard it's just the same shitty company that's like hey it was working when i tested it last <laughs> Suck us. i mean look you're in space how much ejection can you do eject out into the cold void of space good idea but i'll take the check the check cashes they're they're trying to land and matthew lillard makes it inside the little force field hangar and then rosie goes in too fast and too hard and her ship crashes on the deck is what they call it, but it's just kind of the landing strip for spaceships or something, but why on earth do they need that? Anyway, because uh, it's space, you could just go right up to I, yeah. Anyway, so um, my favorite uh, thing in this scene is that they're like, hey, there's no response from Rosie's ship, so Angel gives the order to clear the deck, which means, hey, we're going to get a shitty <laughs> CGI Tonka trunk uh, to to push her spaceship off to, into the gutter, just I guess. Just brush it off. Yeah, yeah, just get it out of here. And Matthew Lillard is like, no, I see her. Don't do this. And he looks up to the guy in like the control room or whatever, and it looks like space Jim J. Bullock. Yeah. And yeah. that made me so happy. Uh, and what made me even happier is that space Jim J. Bullock is like, fuck you, Matthew Lillard. And the deck gets cleared and Angel has landed and she pulls a gun on Matthew Lillard and is like, I'm going to shoot you. And Freddie Prince Jr. is like, please, you're two of my best friends. I can't stand to see you fight. And Matthew Lillard, it very somberly is like, it's okay. She can go ahead and do it. And at that point, that seems to disarm uh, both literally and figuratively uh, Angel who lowers the gun. And that is almost the end of our Rosie saga. You make this sound so much better than it is. None of this plays out the way you're describing, although you're 100% accurate. But watching it, it's just bizarre and awful and boring. That's the thing I can't help, Chad. That's my curse is that I'm a natural storyteller. And when talking about these (laughs) shitty movies, when I synopsize uh, said shitty movies... Um, I give it a little, I give it a little bow polish, you know, I give <laughs> it, you do. I give it a little English. They're, they're hiding the tiger claw in an asteroid and they're like, Hey, the Kilrothi are going to know we're here. So they sent out uh, a decoy and, and Poirot is dead and Captain Racist is in charge, right? Right. And so then they see on the radar that <laughs> there are, it's just a bunch of triangles like that are all the Kilrathi ships because we're not going to be cool and just show the right. actual enemy ships right. amassing and coming for our heroes because that would be kind of interesting. So instead, they show a bunch of digital triangles and then we see them start to turn away to follow this decoy. Right. 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 Oh, it's so much fun, Chad. 
Except there's one ship that doesn't. And and this is when the movie goes full DOS boot. It doesn't even pretend. Uh, they're like, hey, Jurgen Proch now, you remember being in this submarine movie? Do I? It was the last good movie I did. It was 1980. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> and this is the point where they're like, hey, this destroyer is tracking us and it's dropping charges. Our nuclear bombs. gravity works in space. Right. So it's dropping nuclear bombs onto this asteroid. And they're like, we can't take <laughs> too many direct hits of these nuclear bombs. And it's like, well, that makes that adds up. I saw Chernobyl. That shit seems real mean. <laughs> so, but it's it's a, a complete dust dust boot ripoff. As people are legitimately saying, like, everybody be quiet in our spaceship so that they don't hear us as they're dropping nuclear bombs on this asteroid. Right. Which seems right. like it would cover up the sound of I don't know. Jimmy being like screams, <laughs> Jimmy taking a loud shit in in the latrine. <laughs> I can't help it, Captain. It was Taco Tuesday last night. I had thirds. Jimmy put a cork in it. I can't. I can't. I tried to put my thumb on my bottom. It made a mess everywhere. I sound like Freddie Prince Jr. or Michael J. Fox or a young Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> What is with these thumbs in my rectum? It just makes it louder. And so one of these nuclear bombs actually does hit the tiger claw. <laughs> Good for them. Yeah, I mean, the Kilwarathis seem to be accurate, if nothing else. And uh, there's structural damage, so everyone yells a lot and is banging around to try to fix this hole that has appeared in the hangar. And Freddie Prince Jr. tries to help and just fucks it up. And he's just like, yes. oh, I, I slipped. And then <laughs> just flies towards this hole and grabs onto just something sticking out of the floor like uh, a bishop from Aliens. Well, because the hole that was blown open created this vacuum. And it's sucking everything out of the spaceship. And by everything, I mean Freddie Prince Jr. No one else is getting sucked out, just him. Right, well, you just have to know where to stand. You know, like if you're 50 feet away, you're fine. If you're 45 feet away, you get sucked out into the dark vacuum of space. At this point, Matthew Lillard steps up and he's like, I'm going to go save Freddie Prince Jr. And he straps this rope like made of metal around right. his waist. Metal wire. Jo- he looks like Joe Beth Williams in Poltergeist. And he's just like, you guys lower me down. And so to make a boring story short, Matthew Lillard saves Freddie Prince Jr. from getting sucked out of the hole in the side of this ship. And then E-Buzz comes over and picks up a goop-covered tennis ball. I really like that. You tell Freddie Prince Jr. to stay away from that hole. She won't listen to you. You're the one who disciplined her. I've never laid a hand on her. Anyway. This spaceship is now clean. You know, Matthew Lillard won't be back to this ship. I will. God, I wish we were talking about that movie. You ever see anything weird in your house? Maniac, because it was a terrible idea, is hurt bad. Uh, because of the metal wire wrapped around his waist and being sucked, nearly sucked out into space. Yeah, but that don't come to nothing. Matthew Lillard gets a big scrape across his tummy. Right. But he gets a bandage. And they're like, well, right. because uh, immediately Freddie Prince goes to Angel and is like, hey, I know Matthew Lillard, my pal, killed Rosie and all. But if you could kind of give him a little boost of confidence, he's kind of got the yips. And she's like, I'll think about it. Angel then goes to Maniac, uh, Matthew Lillard, and is like, you know, you need to get over yourself. Also, I need my best pilots on the flight deck. That means you too. 
do it for Rosie. And he's like, all right. And then that's it. There is almost no more Matthew Lillard in this movie. Not at all. Uh, meanwhile, Taggart uh, has said, oh, that destroyer that's trying to blow us up is going to save us all. So they, what they do is they <laughs> assemble a strike team that Captain Racist, Angel, Freddie Prince Jr., Matthew Lillard, uh, although I don't think you really see him anymore. Um, they're all going because what they're going to do is they're going to assault this destroyer. But because... The- this movie really enjoys taking every opportunity to uh, make Jurgen Proch now the biggest racist that ever existed in the universe. Yes. When they're like, hey, you don't have to come with us, Captain Racist. Like, you can stay here and just command the ship. And he says, what? And leave my fate in the hands of a rogue and a half-breed? I don't think so. And other than the I don't think so, that line is verbatim. Yes. It's tremendous. And it does lead to maybe the only line in the movie that could be considered a joke. When Captain Racer says that, Taggart says, you know, I'm really starting to like him. And it's like, okay, you know, that's an earned joke, but it's not funny. Does that mean that he's racist too? Uh, no, I think, I mean, he's being uh, a bit sarcastic or ironic. It's hard to tell. I thought maybe he was just really embracing nationalism. Uh, maybe so. It's like if you watch Fox News enough, you're, you're like, man, this really makes some sense. You're right. There is a deep state. So they're hiding in another asteroid and they, they're like, hey, that's not the destroyer. That's that comm ship that we saw way back at the beginning of the movie. Say what? Oh, and the diligent uh, piloted by Taggart is then used to kind of breach the ship. And we get our first look at the Kilroth as we we bust into this ship to raid it for whatever. It's fuel cells is what they're after. They're literally space cats shooting lasers. They're laser cats. I mean, they're... They are giant, hairless space cats that shoot lasers at our our heroes. It is ridiculous. Our heroes make their way onto the space cats spaceship. How this happened, I don't know. I don't care. Freddie Prince Jr. is on their spaceship, and he shoots a space cat or two... And then he finds the Sears diehard battery on their ship, which I was like, I kind of forgot about that thing when it showed up in the movie again. Right. And then we're back on the bridge and Captain Racist gives this detailed exposition, which provides more details that only makes sense to the screenwriter. It's just a bunch of space military gobbledy nonsense. If I may translate, Chad. Please. What happens here is that they need to send the coordinates that the Kilrathi are using to make these space jumps to the fleet so that when the Kilrathi come through the wormholes or whatever the fuck that they come through when they're jumping from point to point in space, that because the fleet of humans would know that exact point, they can just stake it out. And so every time a ship comes through, they just blow the shit out of it. And the, what they say is, we can, we can blow up... They'll kill Rothy ships before they ever have a chance to arm their weapons, if we have this information. So they've got to somehow get those coordinates through these wormholes ahead of the kill Rothy to the, the human fleet protecting Earth. I think what you just described was a wing commander conspiracy theory. 
I don't even know how you got that out of this movie. <laughs> well, Chad, I uh, I watched this movie a lot, and it helped that, like I said, I played these games a lot when I was a kid, <laughs> and so when they're talking about all the jump points and stuff, I know what that is because when you played the game, those were the points where you could jump from one point in space to another. I know that because of my experience uh, as, as a nerdy kid playing these games, but none of that is explained in the movie. No, it's not. So one hole I would like to poke in my own theory uh, about what this whole scene is about, Chad, is that if they are trying to send the coordinates of where the Kilrathi are going to show up, but the Kilrathi got those coordinates from the Pegasus Navcom device, then why wouldn't the people in the Confederation fleet already know where they're going to come? Because it would be... Uh, the same coordinates that they got from the thing that they stole at the beginning of the movie. That is the most rhetorical question I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) All right. So it's just something that bothered me as I was trying to pick apart what the hell was happening in this movie. So anyway, surprise, surprise, Taggart is like, hey, because it turns out I'm a secret Commodore, my little fish and chips. I've selected you for a very dangerous mission. What he's going to do is he's going to get Freddie Prince Jr. to take the coordinates through all these wormholes and quasars and jump points uh, to deliver the information to the Confederation fleet. God, this is so boring. As he's doing it, though, he's like, surprise, surprise. You know that little cross you got? I got one, too. Hey, I'm just like you. It's okay. It's natural. You just... Shh. We are both pilgrims. Just relax. Let it go in. You know what that pilgrim is? It's someone who goes somewhere for the first time. I'm nervous, sir. You don't have to be nervous. Captain Taggart got you. My parents aren't even alive. Help! This guy's so uncomfortable. No, they're all looking down on you right now. It is like a afterlife orgy. It just got even worse. (laughs) So, uh, Angel and Freddie Prince Jr. are heading for the quasar that they're going to jump through. And the tire claw, now that it's got fuel cells from this communication ship or whatever, is going to create a diversion for other Kilrathi that would come and stop Angel. I swear to God, I didn't get anything that you're saying. I, None of, my notes don't have any of this in it. This is, I swear to God, this is what happens in the movie. They're going to create a diversion, but there is a skipper missile launched at the Tiger Claw. And what a skipper missile is, Chad, is oh it's, my God. it's a missile that is cloaked. And then it, every now and again, it uncloaks to, to make sure it, it's on target. And the reason I know that, Chad, is because this was a mission in Wing Commander 3 where you had to shoot down the <laughs> skipper missile. And you the only way to do it is to actually visually see it and shoot it down that way. And so Angel peels off to, to shoot down the skipper missile. And uh, she does shoot it down, but her ship is damaged in the process. And Freddie Prince Jr., instead of doing his job, was like, well, I guess I better wait and see what happens. He flies up to her in her cockpit because her ship is mostly blown up. And he's like, gosh, I better take you back to the Tiger Claw. And she's like, this is an order. You are going to get those coordinates through there and save billions of people on Earth. So get to it, Freddie Prince Jr. But at what point the space cats show up to kind of do battle? 
And Freddie Prince Jr., he on his spaceship, he has another computer. It's called Merlin. And it kind of sounds like C-3PO. It's like if C-3PO and R2-D2 sort of mashed up, you know, as an onboard computer. If they had maybe a sexy robot, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, pilgrims don't mind a robot or two in the mix. At one point, when all of the villainous uh, space cats start talking to one another, they do this weird thing in the movie where they show subtitles of the alien language that the space cats are talking and then there is a wash over this made em up bullshit space language that gets overlaid by english and it doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> no it's real dumb like what kill rathy may be watching this and be like oh you know what i really appreciate that that they did that in my native tongue um that's really nice <laughs> one of the uh kill rathy ships is like, hey, this one ship out in the middle of nowhere is flying towards a jump point, and maybe that's a problem. And then, and that's what these stupid subtitles are telling us: is them saying like, hey, we need to go get that guy. Don't nobody care about any of this. I, I cannot tell you how frustrated I was watching this movie, <laughs> just in my head screaming, I don't give a shit about any of this. I, I mean, how on earth could you, Chad? You I, can't. Right. There is, again, no context for any of this. No. So, <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. is starting his jump, followed by this Kilrathi ship. And, well, he uses the force right. to calculate coordinates and do whatever his half-breed pilgrim lineage enables him to do. Right, and so he jumps through, and it's a real non-event. It's just like, hey, I made it. And you're like, great, I guess. That seemed not hard, and you did it once before in the movie, so it seemed like it's it was so anticlimactic. Right, it's like it's supposed to be a real like hero moment for him, and it's like, nah, all right. I, I guess. But then the Kilrathi ship that was, you know, had kind of sniffed out what was going on. And it's a big destroyer kind of ship follows uh, Freddie Prince Jr. Through. Meanwhile, back in the. Is that Vegas, a bad thing? Uh, Maybe. Probably. In a couple of moments in this film, I really felt like there was going to be a Twilight Zone twist where the Kilrathians were the good guys and all of the Anglo battle assholes were the true villains. And I was like, this might be a really good movie, but it's not. They don't well, do that could still be true. We still have no idea what the Kilrathi philosophy is or anything. Like, we don't know why they're the bad guys other than they're what we're fighting. Do you think that there's a like a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern film out there that could tell a different perspective? Of Man. This? Like, there's, there's, there's a Beowulf and Grendel counterpart that could really shed some light on how the Kilrathian cat aliens are the true gentle giants of the universe. If you told me there was a, a sequel to this movie that was nothing but these stupid space cat puppets talking to each other and getting into scrapes and having adventures, 100% they lick I watch assholes it. a lot and like lick their own genitals to clean themselves. I'd watch that. I think we've done a fine job of refraining from things like why don't they just shine a laser pointer at Pluto? <laughs> Kill Rathians shitting a giant box of sand. <laughs> yeah. Boy, those ships must smell weird. They look so shitty. And they're I'll tell you, there's one there's one moment back in the Vegas sector that I, I genuinely like because it's kind of the movie I wish this was. And it's where uh the Tiger Claw is going like head to head with this Kilrathi destroyer ship and, and Frenchie 
is like, I got an idea. All right, we're going to get right up beside it. And uh, Captain Reese's is like, hey, man, we launched torpedoes at this range. They can't lock on to shit. And he's like, they won't have to. It's going to be super close. And it's these two giant spaceships, like, side by side. And Frenchie's like, drop uh, drop these shields. And then they fire torpedoes like a naval battle, like a, a, a true naval battle, into the side of this destroyer. And it's like, man, in a better movie, that could have been a cool scene where, as I mentioned before, I have this whole fan film in my head where it's more of that sort of naval combat in space, only more focused and without all the dumb shit. But I thought what that was cool. What you're describing is a completely different movie. <laughs> right, right. A different movie that just takes a little bit of the naval combat from this movie. But I do thought I think that was kind of a cool moment in a movie that has so little to recommend it. It's like, eh, well, that was kind of neat. It ain't great, but it's all right. The bar's pretty low. Yeah, no, it's... Of what you're describing. Right, it's the coolest thing in a movie that has nothing cool in it. Then we cut to David Warner, who is like, what's that? We've received the coordinates from Freddie Prince Jr.? Fantastic. Fat Smithers is like, hey, he's being chased by this giant Kilrathi ship. Should, should we go help him? And David... Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, David Warner's just like, no, fuck that guy. We're going to stay right here, and we are going to shoot all the Kilrathi ships that come through the coordinates that he has provided us. So that asshole is on his own. So what Blair does, and this is another thing that I'm going to ask this question, and it probably is rhetorical, but Freddie Prince Jr., his way out of this situation with this giant destroyer that's closing in on him, he's just in his tiny little rapier ship. Oh. And he gets the bright idea because he sees Beacon 147. Hey, I could I could fly towards that big black suck hole. And maybe and maybe that big ship could follow me and then they would get sucked into the suck hole, but I could whip away from the suck hole. At least that's what Wikipedia said happened in this movie. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what goes down. But my question is this Scylla gravity well that he is mentioning here. Wasn't that back in the Vega sector at the beginning of the movie? And in fact, was like when when Admiral Tolan is like, who's in the Vega sector? And they're like, hey, the diligent is. And he says very coolly, diligent. Um, I, I, I know. I, it doesn't make any. <laughs> right. It none shouldn't of this makes be sense. there. So sure enough, he turns away at the last second. The Kilrathi ship goes into the gravity well and blows up. We've kind of saved the day because a bunch of these ships starts. Uh, the Kilrathi ship starts coming into the the soul sector is what it's called. The Earth sector. Good and God. the reason I know that is because when they go out to look for Freddie Prince Jr. later. The director of this film, Chris Roberts, is the guy who says, welcome to Saul Sector. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, he did a real Hitchcock with this shit. Uh -huh. Shut the fuck up. But Taggart is like, hey, where's that uh, little lady that my little lamb chop likes so much? And they're like, I don't know. We kind of lost track of her because we kind of forgot, to be honest, sir. And he's like, all right, well, I'm going to take my ship and see if I can find her. And and then he does. And uh, so he brings her back. They come through. The Tiger Claw comes through the jump uh, points. Um, all the Kilrathi ships. Because they even say in the movie, like, we don't know why they're doing this, sir. But all these Kilrathi ships are coming through one at a time. And just like we thought, we're shooting the shit out of them before they ever right. raise shields right. or anything. 
Which is again is so anticlimactic. There's no big space battle or anything. It's just like nope. a ship shows up, we shoot it, it blows up. Another ship shows up, we shoot it, it blows up. Fish in a barrel. <laughs> Right, it's so dumb. There's a big scene on the bridge of uh, the uh, the Tolan ship, the David Warner ship, where he's like, Freddie Prince Jr., your parents would be proud. And he's like, thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. Hey, where's that lady I like so much who makes me feel weird? She's on a different ship, and we've wasted your time and the audience's time having you come to this ship a first. Right. He immediately is just like, it sounds like you're on the wrong ship. And it's like, well, then why did we go here? Why am I even, yeah, why am I here, sir? I'm going to get back on my ship and fly over to that other ship and whittle off two minutes and 12 seconds the, the runtime of the film we're in right now. See you later, sir. It really would have helped the pacing quite a bit. I don't know. I hate to armchair quarterback this one, but boy, seems like a lot of fat on this. But yeah, sure enough, he just he shows up at one ship to fly to another ship. And then when he gets there, very conveniently, everybody in the movie is just hanging out in the hangar. So mm-hmm. Angel has been brought in by Taggart. And his wing commander. Right. And so she's passed out until Freddie Prince Jr. shows up and then kisses her to wake her from her slumber. Jesus Christ. And then Matthew Lillard shows up to hug everybody, too. He's like, hey, I heard this was a party. And then Taggart is just like, all right, you crazy kids. See you next time. And <laughs> and then that's kind of it. I mean, it's it goes out on Freddie Prince Jr. and Angel uh, kissing. and On a, a medical gurney as they wheeled her away because she got hurt somewhere, somehow. Everyone's laughing and smiling, so it seems like everyone seem, uh, you know, is of the opinion that she's going to be fine. Did you stick around for the credits to see where Freddie Prince Jr.'s navigation system, Merlin, is credited not with a name but with a big question mark? Uh, I did not pay attention to that because as soon as credits start to roll on this thing, unlike Rosie, I eject successfully. I shot my TV with a shotgun. And set it on fire. And I, I didn't see anything that implied who that might be. Do we have any idea? It, I mean, no, it could I, be Chris I, I just think himself. I think that the people who just were doing the credits were like, who did Merlin? I don't know. Fuck it. Question hey, mark. Next. You know, you can just call Chris. In fact, he's here on the lot. All you got to do is just. I'm not calling him. Just 2253. I've, da- I've seen the dailies and nope. 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 <laughs> I am not talking to that guy. He is done in this business. Yep. So, and yeah, that that's it. That, that's it. That's Wing Commander. So, Chad, as someone who is a lifelong fan of uh, the Wing Commander games. Never played one of them. Who brought this film to you. Is it worse than House of the Dead? It's not worse than House of the Dead, It's but it's more boring than house of the dead house of the dead is worse than wing commander but it's more entertaining because of clint howard and gratuitous nudity and violence this movie is just strangely boring it's it's like a weird dream that you have in an afternoon nap that you immediately forget when you wake up because you're thinking about what you're having for dinner Yeah, I would agree with all that. That's pretty much how I feel all the time. You know, you said this on other movies that we've reviewed. If you watch it and you don't think about it, it has all of the trappings of a good movie, but it's not. 
the problem this one has on top of that is that it's just so poorly paced and it's so dull that mm-hmm. you can't not reflect on that. So it, it the movie undoes itself by being completely full of shit and utter nonsense and right. being way too slow to pull one over on an audience. Yes. You know, if it if it had a lot more action, maybe they'd get away with it. Yeah, it's not good. Not to preview my own shit later this season, my last movie I think is worse than this. Our next movie is is a real treat. <laughs> and it is it's going to be Pixels starring Adam Sandler and a cast of idiot. This was a pick on my part. I've seen this movie once and I remember thinking, this is awful. I wish I had a podcast that I could talk about this movie in much more detail. And then Bo and I started this podcast. Was this, <laughs> is this like a secret backdoor? I, I just, I've had this chip on my shoulder in the shape of pixels for long enough and that all the seasons before were just prelude to this moment uh short answer yes long answer no i i have seen this movie now mm-hmm. uh yeah. and i i can verify this is uh, uh what what they they call in the the movie review business chad a real turkey this one's a real turkey <laughs> <laughs> so come back next week we will be putting our quarters up on the the screen letting others know that we have posted up and we will be playing this game next pixels is a mess the thing about pixels is that it is derivative of three other films and does justice to none of them and i will happily happily take this movie behind the woodshed and give it what for well, hey, folks, uh, by the way, you can uh, find us on uh, various social media platforms. Importantly, though, if you want to get in touch with the show, uh, yeah, what you do is you send an email like an old person uh, to uh, pick six movies at gmail.com and uh, and let us know uh, if you have any thoughts on seasons you would like to uh, t- to hear from us. As always, we will entertain the idea, uh, but rarely actually indulge it. But uh, we would uh, always like to hear from you and and see uh, how you're feeling, how you're doing. And in the meantime, I guess we'll be back next week, Chad. Oh, we'll definitely be back next week. With the penultimate episode of Season 7 of, uh, of Pick 6 Movies. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Come back next week, and we guarantee a terrible time. Don't we always? Always. That's our brand.